A story is told about a concerned husband who went to see his family doctor. I think my wife is going deaf, he said. She never hears me the first time I say anything. Why is some of you are already laughing here, you know? (laughs) In fact, I often have to repeat things over and over again. Well, the doctor replied, we'll have to do a little test. So go home tonight and stand about 15 or 20 feet away from her and say something. If she doesn't reply, you know, move five feet closer and say it again. And if she doesn't reply, move a little closer and say it again. Keep doing this so we can get an idea of the severity of her deafness. Sure enough, the husband goes home that night. He does exactly as the doctor instructed. He stands about 15 feet away, and he speaks to his wife, who is standing there in the kitchen, and she's getting supper ready, and he says, Honey, what's for dinner? He gets no response, so he moves about five feet closer, and he asks again, Honey, what's for dinner? Still no response. He moves five feet closer, and still no reply. So by now he's getting a little frustrated and he moves right up behind her about an inch away and he asks one final time, Honey, what's for dinner? And she replies, For the fourth time, vegetable stew. (laughs) All right, it's easy to blame others for our own hardness of hearing, isn't it? Spiritually, hard, hardness of hearing is a serious problem. And it's easy to think that everyone else has a problem hearing God's voice, when in reality, we may be the ones who are hard of hearing. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11 is where we pick up in our study this morning. Hebrews 5 verse 11, the author of Hebrews says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Much to explain, but you have become dull of hearing. Of hearing. The Greek word translated dull here in Hebrews 5 verse 11 means to be lazy, to be sluggish in our hearing. So spiritual sluggishness strangles spiritual life. When you're hard of hearing, when you're lazy, when you're spiritually sluggish in listening to God's voice, which comes through His word, then that's going to strangle your spiritual life. We left our study of Hebrews two weeks ago, talking about Melchizedek in verse 10. We learned that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews wants to continue talking about this important theme in the book of Hebrews, and in fact he will pick it up again the end of chapter 6 and in chapter 7 of Hebrews. But first he is concerned that The people are hard of hearing. They're not ready to understand, to comprehend what he is trying to explain. It is too much for them. It's hard to explain important truths of God's word to those who have become spiritually sluggish, spiritually lazy. The verb implies a process, not an event. 
We become spiritually sluggish. Doesn't happen just like that. We become spiritually sluggish. It's a process that takes place over time. And we may not even think that process is happening because it happens so gradually that we become hard of hearing. We get caught up in other matters that crowd Christ out of our lives. And we become spiritually hard of hearing. Our ears are no longer tuned to the Lord, tuned to His Word. Like the seed that fell among the weeds in Christ's parable, the cares of this world choke out the desire for the Lord. Like the seed that fell on rocky soil in that parable, we spring up with joy only to become to, to wither away when the hard times come. We often think others have become hard of hearing when it's we who have become hard of hearing. We no longer hear God's voice and we find it offensive to listen to what God says to us in His Word. And slowly, over time, spiritual sluggishness strangles our spiritual lives. The truth is, in our spiritual lives, that we either go on or we go back. That's the principle of verse 12, the next verse in this passage. Look at Hebrews 5, verse 12. Because, for, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the the words, the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. The Christian life is not designed for running in place or treading water. It's more like riding a bicycle. You have to keep pedaling. You have to to continue to move forward. If you stop on a bicycle, what happens? You fall. It crashes. In In the Christian life, you can't stand still. You're either going forward or you're going backward. You're falling. I mean, certainly as Christians, we fall off the bike, so to speak. But we get back on and we ride. We move. There's progress. The idea that we can take time off from being a Christian, that's not biblical. Okay, God, I've been pretty busy with this Christian stuff for for quite a while now. It's, It's time for me. I'm going to just chill for a while. God, you you go on without me. I'll go to church once in a while. I'm not denying you, Lord. I'm not not saying I don't believe in you or any of that sort of thing. But I just need some me time right now. You think that works? No, it doesn't work. What happens is we become spiritually sluggish. We become dull. We become hard of hearing. And we don't even see what's happening in our lives. We begin to lose our ability to hear God until we can't hear Him at all because we've crowded Him out of our lives with all the other stuff. What's the first sign of spiritual decline? The first sign, the first crack in the foundation. It is disinterest in the teaching of God's Word. It is disinterest in the teaching of God's Word. We don't want to listen anymore. It's not important to hear anymore. 
When we no longer want to go to church, we no longer want to hear God's Word taught, our spiritual foundation is beginning to crack. When we don't spend time studying God's Word or learning the teachings of the Bible on a regular basis, we begin to decline spiritually. We become spiritually lazy. We become sluggish. We lose our ability to hear God. The author of Hebrews realizes that these Christians should have been teachers by this time, he says, in their spiritual lives. They have been around the teachings of the Christian faith long enough now they should have become teachers. Now, he doesn't mean that they should all have been gifted as teachers. He just simply means that at this point in your lives, you should know enough that you could teach others the principles of God's Word, the, the teachings of our faith. But you're not. Instead, many Christians in the churches he was writing to, he says, needed someone to teach them the basics. In fact, they needed someone to teach them the elementary principles of the words of God. The word translated elementary literally means, uh, it meant originally, one in a row. And it came to mean the alphabet. One in a row of letters in the alphabet. The ABCs, if you will. The word translated principle means beginnings or origins. So the point is that instead of progressing to where they could understand the great teachings of God's Word, they had regressed to where they needed someone to teach them the ABCs of the beginnings of their faith. Go back to the basics. They needed to go back to Sesame Street spirituality. You know, you learn the alphabet, right? They had to go back there. To change the metaphor, the author of Hebrews says they needed to drink milk instead of solid food. They had to go back to infancy. They could no longer eat the solid food of the Bible. They needed to start over with baby food. They needed to start over with the alphabet, the ABCs. The sad reality is that Many who profess faith in Jesus Christ and even become active in church may turn away from God's Word. They may slide into spiritual deadness over time. Pastors certainly see that often. It's a very common trend. In fact, quite frankly, I wonder if this might well be a good summary picture of the entire church in America today. We like Sesame Street spirituality. You know, it's fun. It's pleasant. It's catchy. It's simple. It's basic. Nobody gets too offended at Sesame Street spirituality. But don't give me anything too heavy, God. Don't make me think too much. Don't make make me deal with too much hard stuff in life. People today don't want doctrine taught in church anymore. We want Sesame Street stuff. The sad reality is, folks, if we stay at the Sesame Street level of spirituality long enough, 
we get to the point where we can't digest doctrine anymore. We can't eat real spiritual food anymore. So a person may profess to be a Christian for 30 years, but have the spiritual understanding of a baby and not be able to learn anything too deep from God's Word, and they're not prepared for the hard stuff of life. They cannot see what God wants them to see because their eyes are busy seeing what they want to see and their ears are busy hearing what they want to hear. And so they miss it all. Pastor Mark Buchanan tells about two visits that he made to East Africa to the Maasai Mara, perhaps the greatest wildlife preserve, he says, in all of Africa. The Maasai Mara is part of this vast grassland there in East Africa with lots of animal life. There are elephants and, and, and crocodiles and cheetahs and gazelles and water buffalo and giraffe and rhinoceros and hippopotamus. So all this animal life. And you take the safari and you, you go through the, the grassland of the Maasai Mara and see all of this. And you have a guide. And he said the two different times they had two different guides. And one guide was excellent, and one guide just about ruined their whole trip. Stephen, the first guide, made the trip a thing of joy and wonder and endless surprise. The second guide, William, was a different thing entirely. Stephen had good eyes, he said. William basically had no eyes for what was around them. Stephen was a Maasai man in his early 20s who had grown up a few miles from the very ground that he was showing them. He knew the animals, he knew the lifestyle, he knew everything around that area. Every grove, every bend in the river. The land was in his blood. He knew the histories of the animal life that there. And he would stop, he said, and he would gaze at something two kilometers off in the distance. It looked like a little grassy hillock or, or a, a, a grove of acacia trees or something. And they'd all stop and they'd look at it. And then he'd drive slowly up to it and they'd arrive there and they'd find some cheetahs sunning themselves in a private spot. Or they'd find, uh, you know, a pride of lions there. And they would enjoy the wildlife. William, on the other hand, was a Komba man in his mid-fifties who grew up in Nairobi. He couldn't see for looking, and the problem was he wasn't looking much. He spent most of his time chatting on his CB to his buddies and driving them around. He just sort of followed the crowd of tourists, you know. And so they always ended up at the tourist spots with a couple of hundred other tourists who were out looking at this group of animals totally missing all of the surprises all around them one time they were driving along and there was a herd of elephants right beside the road and he never saw them they're driving past they said hey hey there's elephants here he says oh where where totally missed it the point is that is so like so many Christians or those who profess to be Christians who just don't see or hear God and what He is doing in this world. The author of Hebrews is setting us up here in, in these verses 
for a warning that he is going to deliver in chapter 6. It's the third in his series of warnings in the book of Hebrews. We've talked about this before. Quite frankly, chapter 6 is one of the hardest passages in all of the New Testament to understand, and I'll make a stab at it next week, all right? But the point is, he is warning them. He is warning them about something very important. And I don't want us to miss the point of his warning, as I understand it. It is this, a primary test of genuine faith is the test of progress in the Christian faith. True Christians progress, false Christians regress. That's one of the primary tests of true Christianity. I don't mean that true Christians don't fall or sin. Obviously we fall. Obviously we sin. The progression is not an ascending linear scale perfect in in going upward toward God, is it? It's more like this. But it is still moving forward in our walk with God. It is still going somewhere. God is doing something in our lives. Changes are happening. Yeah, we fail, but we repent and we come back and we continue to move forward. That's true Christianity. But false Christians regress. They make a wonderful profession of faith, we'll say, and it sounds so marvelous, but over time, things happen and they slide away, and they turn away, and they stop believing, and they stop following the Lord. The author of Hebrews is teaching us in these warnings over and over again that they're not real Christians. That's not what a real Christian does. The question is, one of the primary tests of whether it is real faith or not, genuine faith, is do we progress or do we regress over time? Think of the parable of the sower and the soils that Jesus told in Luke chapter 8. I alluded to it earlier. The first seed is thrown on the hard pathway and it doesn't take root at all. But the second seed is thrown on the rocky soil and it springs up and there's, there's wonderful growth and it looks great until the sun beats down on it and there's no root system in it withers and it dies. Another seed is thrown among the weeds, among the thorns, and and the weeds choke out the life. The weeds, he says, Jesus says, are are the distractions of this world. All of the things that, that are so interesting in this world that we live in that slowly choke out the life. The final seed is thrown on good soil. It's really the parable of the soils, isn't it? Because the seed is constant. It's God's word. It's his gospel. But the, the soil is good soil, and there it springs to life, and it grows, and it produces fruit. Now I ask you, which one of those are believers? I'm going to say to you that only the last in Jesus' parable is a believer. None of the others are believers. They are professors. They are false believers. And that's the point of the warning passages in Hebrews as well. It is only the perseverance that proves the reality. True believers persevere. False believers fall away. Whether it's the distractions of this world that choke out 
what appeared to be life, or whether it's the hard times that wither and kill what appeared to be life. But either way, it wasn't genuine faith. True believers persevere. That's the test. I believe that's the point of the warning passages in Hebrews. Watch out! Keep on keeping on. Real Christians go on. False Christians go back. Author Eugene Peterson leads us on in this study, I think, with with this good illustration. He tells about how at age 35, he bought some running shoes and he began to enjoy the the, uh, smooth rhythms of running. And pretty soon he was running in 10K races every month. And eventually, once a year, he'd run in a marathon. And he loved running. And so he bought all of these running magazines. He subscribed to these running magazines. He would read the magazines and he would run and it was a big part of his life. And then he pulled a muscle and he couldn't run for many months. And he was laid up and and he couldn't participate. He noticed one thing about himself. All of the magazines were still there. But what? What happened? He didn't want to read them anymore. He didn't pick up those magazines. He wasn't reading about running anymore. Why? Because he wasn't running. And when he was healthy again and he started running, then he started reading. The two went together. And he he makes this point. The parallel with reading Scripture is striking. If I'm not living in active response to the living God, reading about His creation, salvation, holiness won't hold my interest for long at all. The most important question isn't, what does this mean? He's talking about when we're reading the Bible. The most important question isn't, what does this mean? But what can I obey? Simple obedience will open up our lives to a text more quickly than any number of Bible studies, dictionaries, and concordances. Eugene Peterson, I think, has captured principle number two in this passage. The essence of what the author of Hebrews is saying in verses 13 and 14. And here's the principle. When we do right, we eat right. When we do right... We eat right. Look at verses 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, it sounds backwards, doesn't it? When we do right, we eat right. But notice the emphasis of the passage grammatically. The mature Christian eats solid food, he says, because. What's the reason he eats solid food? Because of practice in training the senses to discern right from wrong, good from evil. The word translated practice means the experience or skill acquired by practice. So the mature, the complete Christian, needs to eat solid food because he or she is constantly in spiritual training, putting into practice the truths needed to judge between what is good and what is evil. 
When you are in training, you need solid food. So when we do right, we eat right. Let's back up a minute and follow the line of thought here. Those who profess to be Christians, he says, but who become spiritually dull, sluggish, hard of hearing, lazy, become disinterested in the Word of God, need to drink milk because they can't handle solid food. Those who need milk become unaccustomed to the Word of Righteousness. It's not really a big part of their lives anymore. That's when you are drinking only milk you see, then you're really a baby and you're not doing anything. You're not progressing in the word of righteousness. Babies need baby food. You don't feed a baby a steak because the baby cannot handle eating a steak. So it is in the Christian life. If you only want milk, nice, pleasant, basic, superficial Christianity, you'll not be able to eat steak. Now, if steak doesn't do it for you, substitute some healthy vegetarian meal. How's that? (laughs) The point is, the solid, healthy food of an adult, a baby can't eat. A baby is protected from all of the stuff of life and needs to eat milk, needs to eat baby food. Adults in the Christian faith need more than baby food to live on because they are constantly training their senses to have a greater capacity for making good spiritual choices in life. That's why we need the Word of God, the doctrines of God's Word, so we can make those good choices. And as we're training ourselves to do that and developing our capacity, that throws us back. We need more food to eat in order to progress. The the challenge of trying to do right on a daily basis in the tough choices of life means that we need hearty meals, healthy meals that will give us the energy to face the challenges of doing right. So, we need to eat right because we are constantly in the battle to do right. If we live our lives avoiding the tough choices and we aren't interested in the doctrines of God's Word, then what's going to happen? We're babies. We will become used to baby food and unaccustomed to the Word of Righteousness. And then when we need it, it won't be there because there's no depth. There's no reality. And I'm afraid that is the story of many professing Christians in the church in America, quite frankly. There's no depth. And, quite frankly, many of our churches, the teaching has no depth either. Call it the birdbath technique. You know, it's an inch deep and a mile wide. There's nothing there. God says, dig into it. You've got to have this. But you've got to have this because you're in training on a constant basis so that you will have the capacity to make good choices between good and evil, right and wrong in your life. The word, by the way, that is translated trained here in verse 14 is the word from which we get our English word gymnasium. 
gymnasium. The Greek athletes trained or exercised in the gymnasium so that they were ready for the stadium. The gymnasium for our souls is the daily life. It is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It is everyday life. That's the gymnasium for our souls where we are training constant, constantly. I like what author David Trueblood writes. He says, We have not advanced very far in our spiritual lives if we have not encountered the basic paradox of freedom to the effect that we are most free when we are bound. Now that's an irony, isn't it? And he goes on to talk about that. Now it's, it's not just any bondage, he says. He goes on to say, not just any way of being bound will suffice. What matters is the character of our binding. The one who would like to be an athlete, for example, but who is unwilling to discipline his body by regular exercise and by abstinence, is not free to excel on the field or the tracks. His failure to train rigorously denies him the freedom to go over the bar at the desired height or to run with the desired speed and endurance. Then he comes back and he says, With one concerted voice, the giants of the devotional life apply the same principle for the whole of life with the dictum, Discipline is the price of freedom. Now that is a great principle to understand. Discipline is the price of freedom. You know, if you want to be a great basketball player, you have to go to the gym and shoot hundreds and thousands and thousands of shots. If you want to hit your foul shots, you shoot the foul shots by the hundreds and thousands until it becomes unthinking second nature. The same is true of a track star. If you want to run fast, you practice. Whatever sport, whatever you are in as an athlete, it is the practice, the discipline, that gives you the freedom when it comes time to compete. So now you can do it, and you're not thinking any longer. You're not working any longer at it. It's flowing. Music. If you want to play the piano, you practice the scales over and over and over again. Why? Because the discipline of practicing the scales frees you to play the piano, the songs. Discipline is the price of freedom in all avenues of life. And that discipline spiritually starts with training ourselves spiritually. And that requires eating the right spiritual food that will help us train well. So we need to do right to eat right. But here's the interesting thing. We also need to eat right to do right. It really is both, isn't it? A churchgoer wrote a letter to the editor of a newspaper and complained that it made no sense to go to church every single Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. I've gone to church for 30 years, he wrote. And in that time, I've heard something like 3,000 sermons. But for the life of me, I can't remember a single one of them. So I think I'm wasting my time, and the pastors are wasting their time by giving sermons at all. Well, that started a controversy in the letters to the editor column of the, of the paper, much to the delight of the editor, I'm sure. It went on for several weeks until someone wrote this clincher. 
I've been married for 30 years now. In that time, my wife has cooked something like 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I can't recall the entire menu for a single one of those meals. I do know this. They all nourished me and gave me the strength needed to do my work. If my wife had not given me those meals, I would be physically dead today, even if I can't remember the meals. Likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. You interested in God's word? Are you learning? Obviously, it's not just church, but are you studying God's word on your own? Is it a part of your life? Are you feeding on real food? That's the question, isn't it? It boils down to the choices we make in life. We are training ourselves, the author says in verse 14, to discern good and evil in life. We are training ourselves to make good choices in life. We are developing the capacity to judge between good and evil. The word for discern or judge, by the way, is the word from which we get our English word to criticize, to be critical. We must develop our capacity to think critically in the spiritual and moral realm. How do you develop your capacity to think critically, spiritually, morally, theologically? You do so by eating right and by putting it into practice through obedience so you come back and eat some more. And you put it into practice. That's how you develop your capacity to think critically about these matters. We need the solid food of God's word to train ourselves to think critically, to make good choices, and then we need to practice that. Then we need to go back and learn more and put that into practice so that we can think and function critically in these decisions that we make in life. In his book, The Gospel According to Starbucks, Leonard Sweet tells the story of Ed Faubert. Faubert is what is called a cupper. In layman's terms, he's a coffee taster. His taste buds actually are certified by the state of New York. Imagine your taste buds being certified. So refined is his sense of taste for coffee that even while blindfolded, he can take one sip of coffee and tell you not just that it is from Guatemala, but from what state in Guatemala it comes from, at what altitude it was grown, and what specific mountain it was grown on. Now that's a refined set of taste buds through training, right? Folks, we need that kind of spiritual discernment. When it comes to spiritual matters, we need that kind of ability, that capacity to taste, that capacity to discern spiritually what God wants us to hear. That doesn't happen overnight, does it? That comes through training the senses, verse 14, in the practice of life and feeding on the word of God in its depths, not at the ABC level. Knowing the word of God helps us train for the world of God. 
If we neglect to eat right, we'll not be able to do right. It goes both ways. June 23, 2001. The Boeing Company finished a labor of love, the complete restoration of the last existing 307 Stratoliner. It was the world's first pressurized commercial airliner. Only 10 were ever built. Three were owned by Pan Am, five by TWA, and one was owned by Howard Hughes as his personal plane. The prototype, if you're counting, because that's not 10, that's nine. The prototype crashed. (laughs) So only 10 were ever built. But a New York company used a vintage loom to pre-produce the original Pan Am wall fabric. An interior company put in the flooring, the carpeting, the paneling. They even imported Scottish leather for the single aisle and crew seats. All the light fixtures, the bulkheads, the trims were manufactured from the original engineering drawings as they reproduced this. Everything was done to absolute perfection, and they spent a mint on restoring this Stratoliner. Six months later, the aircraft was at the bottom of Seattle's Elliott Bay. It had crashed on takeoff. Were the problems with the engines? No, the engines were fine. What about uh, the tail and wing controls, you know, those old things that they had put back together? No, they were fine, too. You know why they crashed? They forgot to refuel. (laughs) They forgot to refuel the plane before they took off. You know why Christians crash? Or those who profess faith in Christ crash? Didn't refuel. Word of God. If we fail to fill the fuel tanks with God's word, that will be spiritual disaster. And slowly, we lose our ability. We become dull and hard of hearing. And we no longer understand the depths of God's word. The author of Hebrews says, Folks, you ought to have been teachers by now. I think that's what God says to the church here in America. You ought to have been teachers by... Look what I have given you. For so many years, look what you have available. The internet, the radio, the television, the churches, the books. You ought to have been teachers by now, every single one of you. But you've become hard of hearing. And we've got to go back to the ABCs. Father, challenge us. Challenge us to get into your word, to study and to learn and to grow. And to put it all into practice on a daily basis so that we come back to feed again on your word so that we can grow and make progress in the Christian life. This is your call upon our lives. Open our eyes and our hearts to see Your word in all of its fullness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.